Welcome to the Online for Authors podcast. I'm the founder, Jennifer Palmer. Today I'm pleased to welcome Terry M. Brown as our guest host. Terry is an author herself and is considering if a podcast of her own is a fit for her. Until then, we're happy to have her with us. Terry's guest today has many years of experience as a journalist, music and film producer, and entrepreneur. Rob has founded a number of companies both in Japan and the U.S. and has held executive positions in others. He's produced numerous films and music projects with international teams. His area of expertise include the entertainment industry in Asia and the U.S. and Europe, and his projects often have a special emphasis on music, film, online business development, developing musical artists' careers. In addition, he has been reporting for Billboard magazine on Asia since 2007. Rob is one of the producers of OneTopia, a benefit music festival slated for 2024. And he is the son and editor of his father's new book, on aging titled The Wisdom of Maury. All right, today on Online for Authors, I'm excited to have Rob Schwartz. He is the editor of a book called The Wisdom of Maury, Living and Aging Creatively and Joyfully. This is a book that was written by his father, Maury Schwartz, and Rob found the manuscript later after his father passed. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you so much. Tell our listeners, what is The Wisdom of Maury? This is a book my father wrote about aging, as the subtitle says, creatively and joyfully. He approaches it both from sort of a psychological aspect, which is his academic training, though this is not an academic book, and he approaches it from a really practical aspect, giving people really everyday tips and strategic ideas to incorporate into their life. So he began writing the book in the late 1980s, right? That's correct. You rediscovered the book sometime in the early 2000s, and the book came out earlier this year. So kind of tell us the journey of this manuscript that took, it sounds to me like, what, 30, 40 years to get exactly. to the making. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of side stops along the way for this manuscript. So we should start actually when my father was writing this book when I was much younger. <laughs> I was just in my 20s and I actually I was an adventurous spirit. I had been traveling around Asia and I came back to the United States, to Boston, where my parents lived and I stayed at home. It was actually the last time that I ever lived at home with my parents. And it was right when my father was writing this book. So I actually had a chance to talk to him about it, hear his ideas. He was eager to have a, you know, a soundboard. Despite the fact that I was much younger, he wanted to talk about it and see, you know, how his, the ideas resonated with me. So I had a lot of experience with him writing the book and the ideas in the book. Then I went off to Japan and I started living in Japan in the early 90s. Then, of course, my father got ill with ALS, as is well known, he did a series of TV interviews. Mitch Album rediscovered him and wrote the famous book, uh, Tuesdays with Maury, after my father had passed away from ALS. And that became a gigantic bestseller, as most of your listeners will probably know. And then, yeah, some years after that, seven or eight years after that, I was in Boston. I'm a journalist. I was writing some of my journalistic pieces sitting at my dad's desk in the study in our house that my mother and father had lived in for many years. And I opened up a desk drawer and there was this manuscript that of course I was familiar with. It wasn't like I was baffled. I was like, oh yes, I remember dad writing this. I also of course immediately understood because of Tuesdays with Maury, we actually had a chance to publish this now. As you say, it took a really long time, and there was many things involved in that, including negotiating and working with my mother. And I write an essay about my mother's contribution to my father's writing overall, not just this book, but overall, because they were in the same field. My father has a lot of celebrated academic work, which my mother actually contributed to, which is not necessarily as well known as he is. Yeah, it took a long time 
to bring it to fruition. When you got the manuscript at the point that, that you see it and you take a look at it, how complete was it? Uh, thank you so much for asking that question because a lot of people have misconstrued like, I put this together from my father's notebooks or from conversations that I had with him, which is completely incorrect. This was 100% a complete manuscript okay. from the forward till the last chapter. I had to do a lot of editing, and we can talk about that, how and why I edited it. But it was an absolutely complete manuscript, and my father had, you know, worked on it and had it typed. He actually didn't type himself. So he had it typed up. He paid a typist and it was even bound in a very heavy, like black cardboard cover. It wasn't like it's just loose papers or anything. Mm -hmm. So I really had a full book in front of me that, that he had written. Right. And it took a lot of editing and uh, a lot of different work. And the form that it's in now is, of course, different. I think I made it much more readable. But yeah, we had a complete manuscript to work with. So it wasn't like I had any, you know, doubt that this was something that in a form that my father would have wanted. What kinds of things were you having to do to take your father's work and get it to what it is today? There's two main points in that. The one is the length of time. People always think, wow, it took you this long to do it. I lost my father in 1995. Uh, he and I were very, very close, which we can talk about. It actually took me a very long time to even properly start grieving for him. And this is something that he discusses in Tuesdays with Maury, the whole process of grief and grieving. So editing this manuscript was also involved with my grieving for him. So that's one of the reasons why it took a really, really long time. In terms of the actual editing, I will let people know that my father was an academic and he wasn't the most concise writer, right? Things just tended to drag on too long. And I had to do a lot of editing. I had to like cut a lot of stuff down. I added practically nothing. Like all of the words are my dad's. I mean, maybe one word here and there, changing one word, but essentially all of the words are his, but I had to cut a lot of things down take a lot of stuff out and, you know, just make it more readable. You say your dad, apparently he liked to talk. Was his original, the original manuscript, maybe a little more like what you would have expected in a college classroom to hear more of a lecture? Was it more, more written that way? Or did he just have many more examples and many more questions than he has now? Yeah, more the latter. Many yeah. more examples, many more questions. The sentences were too long. This is not an academic book at all. My father right. was an academic and he wrote a lot of academic books. This is absolutely not an academic book written in plain English with a lot of personal stories from my father. But in addition to that, I mean, this is so not an academic work that my father uses lots of other people's stories. He talked right. to lots of people. He interviewed people. There's lots of stories of people, you know, seniors, people who are aging and very inspiring stories. He drops in all sorts of different types of writing because he doesn't want it to be like a narrative or a college lecture, even if it's non-academic. There's poetry, there's newspaper articles, there's exactly. different stories, there's different voices. He has little personal asides of his life. And it's really unusual that way. I mean, it's rare to find a book that drops in all kinds of different types of writing that's not an academic work, that's not, you know, some kind of essay on uh, something that's that's pointedly, you know, trying to, to educate you in some way. Right. This is a real right. personal work that's trying to share his experience and his thoughts on aging. I really understand your you know, you lost your dad and now you're, you're dealing with his work and how that can, can affect you. So I'm an author and I write fiction, historical fiction usually, but I, I, I'm dabbling in a lot of different things. And I was writing a manuscript that I was about 75% done when my father passed away. And although this had nothing to do with him at all, every time I go back to that manuscript, I cannot get any further than I was 
it's like I get a stupor of thought and I just, and so I've decided that I haven't grieved enough yet that when I come to that, I, I get there and immediately I'm just back to my dad becoming ill. And, and so I, I understand that. And that, that does take a lot to be able to, you know, recognize that you have the grieving process that you have to go through and then still wanting to put your dad's work forward. So I can definitely understand the time that took. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The most important point of the editing was to maintain my father's voice. Exactly. And, you know, my father's voice is really present through this book. And obviously it's his book. I didn't want to change that at all. I wanted to try and enhance it. So that was my primary task. And, you know, I hope I've accomplished that. But I also really understand what you say, whether it's a work of fiction, our emotions, you know, are so strong and we have such what's the word, you know, we're placed in a, a situation where those emotions are going to be attached, whether it's writing a book or something else, they're always going to be there. I mean, I'm sure that you can work through the grieving process, however long it takes you, but if those emotions may always be attached to that to work that, of fiction. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the way we are as humans. We, we attach to whatever was going on. And that's why like things like smell and taste and those kinds of things have yes. such strong you know, emotions to it. So like I said, I can really understand that the editing process, it was probably both wonderful and very sad, you know, depending on which parts you were reading or what, what memory you had, you know, like I'm sure there were times where it was like, I remember talking to dad about that. You probably really felt great. And other times where it was more like, and I really miss not being able to talk to dad like that. And it's, yep, that, yeah, that's correct. And yeah. the book made him very present for me because sure. it's, filled, it's filled with ideas. He's also very personal. Like he has a lot of stories about himself in there. And actually there's even a couple of stories about me. So <laughs> I was actually surprised when I started editing it to read that. Cause you know, I was a young man when he wrote this book, but obviously he's using it as an example of right. something else. Yeah. Right. Well, I loved your dad's suggestion in the intro to look at all the issues, talk about them, write down your thoughts. And that the point of the book was to like discover more about yourself. And he offers so many questions to ask yourself mm -hmm. on every topic for moving forward or moving beyond whatever little place that you might be stuck in. Was that typical of your dad's style for maybe like teaching or other things to do a lot of question asking so that people would have to kind of like search and find their own answers and solutions. Introspect. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I write two essays in this book. One is about my dad and one is about my mom. The one at the beginning of the book is about my dad. The one at the end of the book is more or less about my mom. So yes, my father not only was an academic and he was a sociologist and a social psychologist, very much involved with trying to, you know, discover what is this, you know, human psyche that we have and how do we relate to other people? How do we relate to ourselves? In addition to that, he was actually a therapist. As I write in the book, he started a low cost or was a co-founder of a low cost mental health collective or personal growth collective in Cambridge, Massachusetts, long before this was fashionable and also addressing the idea that that psychiatrists or psychologists just cost too much. This was long before insurance covered those things. Right. They offered this service for, for nothing, literally, for people who couldn't afford it. He was very attuned to trying to help people discover things about themselves. And that's part of this book. This book is also him offering suggestions, as I said, ideas that could help you age or remain vibrant and creative or if you get stuck and you know there's very pointed parts where we all have the same pitfalls right whether it's despair or regret or depression you know these are the things that are going to bring us down he addresses them head on right there's no point the first thing that all psychologists will tell you or all therapists will tell you is there's no point ignoring those issues because they're right. not going to go away and it's not going to get better so he addresses those things head on and offers advice and suggestions and way to think about it. But as you say, 
the book is very introspective. It asks the reader to ask questions of themselves and find out what works for them. That's that's the key. Given the number of questions, and you know, I can see this book being used almost as a like discussion group kind of, you know, like in a in a retirement home or in a, you know, uh, not even just for older people, but for those who work with older people, you know, to understand yeah. like what's going on with them. Have you considered like a companion workbook or anything that people might be able to like have next to them to like use with this book? As I was reading it, I found that sometimes I was almost overwhelmed by the the amount of introspection. And it was like, yeah, I've got to get this book read and I need to actually be like, like living in this book for a while. And so it would have, I, I felt the need to take notes. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So it's funny you should say that. Yes, we have thought about a workbook. It's something that I've discussed with my publisher. We haven't moved forward on it right now, but it's definitely a good idea and something that we've thought about. I would also suggest people read this book exactly in the way that you're talking about, take notes and mark passages, you know, have little stick stickets or whatever, mark passages, fold pages, go back to them. It's not the kind of book that you just read from cover to cover and then put it down, right? You read a part, you think about it, you, you know, mull it over, maybe read a little bit more, go back to that passage. There is poetry and, and stories that you can read over and over. So it's the kind of book, as you say, either you live with or you, you know, you take your time and you can go back and forth. And, you know, certain things may speak to you and certain things may not speak to you. And that's perfectly fine, you know. The that's other thing that's interesting is, is that I think that it's a kind of book that you'd want to keep on your shelf because just because a particular issue wasn't speaking to you the first time you read it, doesn't mean that it won't be speaking to you three years later when something different has happened right. or there's been a change or a shift in in how maybe you're doing physically or how you're doing mentally or how, you know, whether you've had maybe the death of someone close to you or something, a different section of that book yes. will will address those feelings that you're having. That's right. That's right. I think yeah. my father addresses that in general, how our feelings shift and how we our perspective shifts. And it's important to embrace that. You know, sometimes some people, not everybody feel, oh, I must remain constant and have the same, you know, ideas and same opinions all the time. And, you know, that's not necessary. Life is about growth and change. And that's what's stressed in this book and learning. In fact, learning is one of the techniques, if you like, that my father really stresses. Sometimes when people reach a certain age, they think like, all right, that's it. You know, I don't need to learn anymore. I don't need to explore new things. And my father says, yeah, exactly the opposite. When you reach a certain age, it's important for you to focus on exploring and experiencing new things and opening yourself up to new experiences and see which resonate with you. If it doesn't resonate or you don't enjoy it, then obviously don't pursue it. Yeah, <laughs> find something else. But this is one of the things that, you know, he was concerned with. I'll give you a little bit more background. The reason why my dad was motivated to write this book is that, as we talked about, he was a professor at Brandeis University, and he was always surrounded by undergraduates. He was an extremely popular professor because his courses dealt with things like, you know, what does it mean to live in this society? And how do we interact with the society? How do we interact with other people? You know, he taught a course called group process, which addressed these questions. So, you know, they're fun questions to talk about. Right. He was an extremely popular professor and he always thought of himself as very young and very vivacious. He was always full of energy. I mean, literally people said when he passed away, like they were in shock even after they knew he was ill because he seemed ageless. And it's really true. He was the kind of person that didn't seem to have any age. Um, and when he turned 70, his university forced him to retire. This is no longer a thing at universities. Professors are no longer forced to retire at age 70, but he was. And it was a shock to him because he viewed himself as a young person. And he had to come to terms with the fact that the university and society at large viewed him as an elderly person. 
And he wasn't comfortable with that at first. And he had to ask himself, why am I not comfortable with that? And of course, he discovered a whole set of attitudes that he had internalized that he thought were wrong. And those are ageist attitudes that old people can't do anything. And he thought, well, that's ridiculous. In fact, not only can, you know, senior people do a lot of things, they're more situated to do interesting things than other people because they have so much life experience. So he felt he had to address this in writing. And that's the impetus to write this book. Right. And I, I love the fact that, that the book came about because he recognized, A, that he re- actually was aging and that someone else had recognized that and, and kind of forced it on him. And that he recognized that he had those ageist attitudes right. towards other people, not toward himself, right, but toward toward other old people, what he considered old senior people. And and he didn't want to be that person. And then he had to kind of change that idea. One of the things that he says was that he was hoping that people were going in society, were going to change how they looked at seniors and those who were growing older. And of course he wrote that, you know, in the eighties. And so here we are now, you know, 35, 40 years later, do you think that society has changed much in the way that it views seniors? And do you think your dad would be satisfied with where society is looking at that question? I'm going to say that society has not changed that much and that uh, it's still a major issue. You know, we've addressed some of the big prejudices, not that they don't still exist, but we've addressed, addressed them and, you know, pretty much across the board, whatever your political affiliation is and however you perceive it, we all agree, or almost all of us agree, that racism is wrong, right? Right. How you perceive racism, and people perceive it in different ways in our society, but that's fine. We don't need to talk about it. It's wrong to judge somebody by the color of their skin, right? It's wrong to judge somebody by their gender, right? It's just wrong. You don't know anything about them just because they're X gender or Y gender or Z or whatever, right? You don't know anything about them. It's wrong to judge somebody on such superficial things as those. It's wrong to judge somebody on their age. It's just wrong. It doesn't tell you anything about who they are, the nature of their character, et cetera. But I think that we still have a very deep problem in this society. And believe me, it is worse in this society than other societies. There's other societies where elderly people are more venerated than this society. I lived in Japan for many, many years, and that is the case in Japan. I wouldn't say it's perfect. I wouldn't say that they don't have their issues, even regarding the elderly, but it's better than in the United States. I can tell you that. So I think this is still a deep problem in our society, and I think my father would be distressed in how little this problem has been, been addressed, and I hope that he would hope, and I would hope that this book, you know, starts a discussion or goes a little bit of the way in addressing this um, problem. I would add one thing that Mm -hmm. I do think it is a little better now than when my father wrote this book and before that, in that senior people are feeling like they can exert themselves, they can do more in society. You hear about so many people who are elderly doing something fascinating, starting a second career, You know, this isn't directly related to this book, but I do have to say it because I'm of a certain age. The society that we live in, in some ways, is so much different in terms of what you can accomplish than 30 or 40 years ago, especially economically. I mean, you know, the younger generations, Gen Z and Gen Y, know all this. I mean, you can start a company and be a multi-billion dollar company in a few weeks. That was never possible. Before, right. before the right. internet, before digital technology, it just didn't happen. So there is all kinds of possibilities, both economic and just in general because of the internet, that you can learn about things, you can achieve things in a short period of time now. And that's extremely exciting. Yes, it is. I agree. So I'm 60. My husband is 72. And I have noticed several times with my husband it's been maybe three years ago, he had a doctor's appointment for an issue. And when he came home from the doctor's appointment and I asked about him about it, it had not been addressed. 
essentially he was told, I've seen worse. Mm. And that really made me angry yeah. because the issue was keeping him from, he's a cyclist and it was keeping him from riding his bicycle. And he was told, well, if it hurts when you ride your bicycle, don't. And I thought that's ageism. And I marched right back to the doctor with him. And my husband is a very, um, he normally will speak his mind, but I think there's something about that, that doctor patient relationship. And I just, you know, I pretty much laid it on the line and said, you know, telling my husband who rides 70 miles a day, five days a week that he shouldn't be on his bicycle doesn't make any sense. And they said, oh, well, most people his age don't want the surgery. And I said, yes, but you didn't even ask him. Yeah. You yeah. didn't give him the option. And of course he did have the surgery and he was fine and he went back to writing. And right. so, you know, sometimes when I'm reading things like this, I think that I know the book was intended for people who are aging, but I really think that it would be helpful for people who deal with an aging population Absolutely. to understand that simply because someone's older doesn't mean that their life is over, that they don't still have thoughts and feelings and emotions, that they still can't fall in love, that they can't enjoy intimacy, that they can't, they can't be active, that they can't learn something new, that, that they're, you know, it, I think it's just crazy to think that, okay, you, you turn a certain age and now you're expected to sit in a rocking chair and knit until you right. die. And it, doesn't, right. it doesn't make it's sense. Yeah. It's totally yeah. absurd. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that I could say about the story. I don't want to, you know, criticize things too heavily, but the right. medical establishment in this country, particularly in regards to, you know, seniors and, and aging people, but I would say in general has a long way to go. Exactly. And I would add to your list of, you know, all the things that's, of course, you know, we have feelings and that sort of thing at any age. But what my father stresses is, is seniors have incredible potential. He's always talking about developing and starting exactly. something new and moving forward. And that's the thing that people don't think like, oh my God, what incredible potential. When you say that, you immediately think of someone who's young, someone you who just graduated year old, right. potential right. to be something great. Somebody who's 75 has incredible potential to take what they've learned in life and do something new, do something exciting, do something innovative. Those are not the kind of things that are associated with, with aging people in our society. And that's what this book is trying to address. I agree. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. So your dad brings up the term age casting, yes. which is not something that I had ever heard before. Will you explain what age casting is and how that's different from the ageism that I had heard of? Sure. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, very few people have keyed on that when I've been interviewed. It's his coinage, which means that he invented that term. Okay. So okay. You would never have heard it unless uh, somebody else independently invented it. It's a type of ageism that has specifically to do with somebody's role in society. Of course, my father was an academic, so, right. you know, and to think that way. He created it from the term typecasting in you know, entertainment, where somebody plays one role and then they're forced to play that kind of role for the rest exactly. of their career. Exactly. So it, it's the exact same thing for, for um, senior people. When they become senior, they're cast into this idea that basically that they can't do anything. As you said, they're supposed to sit in a rocking chair. So it's age casted. The age decides what the role that they're supposed to play in society. So it's very similar to ageism, but it's a particular flavor of it, shall we say. Right, right. And he thought it was right. It was really important to cast that off, if you like, and understand that seniors can play any role in society. And I think that that is coming to be in the, you know, the present day. We have a president who's extremely elderly, just because it's coming to be doesn't mean that people have cast off the um, prejudices. And that's something that, you know, this book is really trying to address. Well, you know, something that I've noticed with my own children and then me to my mother, when I was younger, 
my mother's 20 years older than I am. She, she was a young mother. So she Ooh. was 20 years old when she had me. And I remember growing up thinking my mother was old. Ooh. Right. And then as I got older and recognized my mother was not old then, but still considered she was old now. Well, Ooh. now I'm 60. My mother's 80. And I don't feel my mother is old anymore. Right. right. In fact, I think she's extraordinarily vibrant and I love mm. watching her go out and do, et cetera. But what I've noticed is my children think I'm old. Right. Right. And it's interesting how that has, how that has happened, you know, because when I was their age, I too thought my mother was old. Right. You know? right. And I keep telling them because they'll say things to me. Uh, my husband and I rode on a tandem bicycle from the coast of Oregon to Washington, DC. Wow. So 3,102 miles. And they, you know, you can't do that, mom, you're too old. And it was like, yeah, well, watch me. <laughs> and so there's been a lot of things like that. And so I think it's just interesting how as, as we ourselves age, as long as we don't fall victim of, of, you know, casting ourselves into a particular role, I'm recognizing that I really don't feel significantly older in my mind I mean, my body is starting to feel some things, but but in my mind, I don't really feel much more than mid thirties tops. Right. And I still have lots of things I want to do and achieve and accomplish and be. And the age doesn't seem to be playing a big factor in it anymore. Hmm. And and I wonder at what point as you're coming along, does that really happen? Like, right, does, right. does it happen when you're when you're forty or fifty somewhere in that? age, all of a sudden I recognized age is more just a number and it just represents how many years I've been here, but it doesn't represent what I can and can't do. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you pretty much summed it up. I, I could add uh, just one word to that whole process. I think we call that maturity, not, yes. not in an aging sense, yes. but in an, emotion, in an emotional sense. Right. You know, right. you have certain ideas when you're younger and as you mature, you realize that they're maybe not the, they don't maybe capture reality as as well as you thought they did when you were young. And obviously, um, we have an incredibly youth oriented society. That's not the entire reason that your kids think that, but it may be part of it. We have an incredible mm -hmm. youth oriented society and young people think the world is about being young and everything about, you know, being young is great. And you when you get older, your, you know, understanding expands and you realize, well, you know, every age in life has its good points and its bad it's points. It's bad points, know. exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. In yeah. fact, your dad said this, let me see. Old age can be the best time of our life or the worst time of our life. It depends on what we do with it. Right, exactly. And I really liked that because my thought was, is, well, that's true really of any age that you live exactly. in. Exactly. You know, exactly. like what, what are you doing with it? And so this idea of, you know, the joyful, you know, living, I think I know that this is focused on aging, but there are a lot of things throughout that I think that a 30 year old could read Absolutely. and learn how to be engaged and active in their life at 30 and at 40 and at 50 and at 80 right. and at 103, you know? I completely agree with you. I think that my father also had that in mind because he was used to teaching young people. So- right. You know, this was aimed at at seniors, at people who were aging, but he definitely had in his mind how to communicate with people across all ages. And I'm going to drop one thing in about uh, what you said about young people, because a famous poet who my father loved poetry. And as I said, there's poetry sprinkled throughout this book. The famous poet Walt Whitman once said, youth is wasted on the young. Yes. And it's just so true. If you, you know, when you're young, you think you understand so much, but as you get a little bit older, you realize that maybe your orientation wasn't particularly correct and you have some learning to do. And that's just the nature of life. This book could fit anybody at any age. And certainly somebody who's 20 or 25 could get a tremendous amount out of this book that might help them live life, you know, more fulfilled more fulfilled, more joyful, you know, exactly. because the exactly. truth is, is that a lot of these issues your father brought up 
you know, with, you know, depression and loss and, and you know, those things happen throughout our lives. Exactly. And we exactly. often, especially younger, I think gloss by them and, exactly. and try to just like live around them and right. pretend they're not there. And then eventually by the time you get to be older and have maybe more time and more wisdom to understand it isn't going anywhere and that you need to address it. That's when you start actually like looking at those things, but boy, wouldn't it be really powerful to at 20 years old, recognize what you can do to embrace life as it is. Right. You know, and, and to be able to change into what it's going to become. Right. Right. Yeah. That's very well put. And as you said, there are actually very specific areas, challenges that, you know, all of us have throughout any age. And my father addresses them and hopefully gives people techniques to move through them and do better. The one that sticks in my mind is regret because we all have regret. I think also we have regret at any age. I think it is a 20 year old. You have regrets as a 30 year old, you know, and that's something that's hard to deal with. Regret is not a nice feeling. Right. And my father writes about it and says, maybe try and do this. Maybe try and do that. See if this helps you. That one particularly sticks in my mind for somebody of any age reading that going, wow, that may help me live, you know, more joyously, more more creatively. Yeah. Right. I agree. I I love the fact that your dad told so many stories and examples because maybe one example didn't, didn't touch you, but the next one would, or maybe the poem didn't touch you, but his example with the woman in the newspaper clipping did or whatever. And he, and he gives enough examples for, for each thing that he's talking about and then asks questions so that you can sit and and do the introspection and then offers like real tangible, here's some things you can try. And he doesn't even say, and when you do this, all your regret will disappear. I mean, you know, he isn't, he isn't being Pollyanna about it. He's just saying, you know, regret's going to be there, but there are ways to manage it. And here's some things that you might want to consider trying and see if this works for you. Right. And if not, here's a few more things you might, you know, <laughs> you know? Exactly. And, and I really like that approach, which is there isn't a cure-all. And then speaking of cure-all, he actually, I love this quote too. He said, aging is not a problem we need to solve, but a stage in life to be lived well. Right. And so, you know, his point isn't, okay, so you're getting old and here's how we cure that. Right. You know, it's it's your your aging and here's how to take everything that you've lived thus far and where you can aim it to keep living joyfully until you're done. Right. Right. You know, and you're not done until you're done. Like, you know, I think that I think that as far as what I understood from your father is he expected people to be learning new things and taking new classes right up until they took their last breath. Exactly. Exactly. Just having that attitude of, you know, you can learn and experience new things and incorporate it into my life every day, whether it's a class or whether, you know, it's some everyday experience that you never had before or some new, you know, minute detail, whatever it is. Do you think your dad lived that? Did did he embrace it? Did you see him living that? Absolutely. I want to put this in context because it's kind of funny. There's a bunch of different paradoxes, especially from what people know about my father. So I feel like this book and Tuesdays with Maury are kind of bookends, right? They're, (laughs) They're two ends of the same spectrum. And there's a lot of paradoxes in it. One of the paradox is that Tuesdays with Maury was published before this book and is the reason that people know my father, but this book was written first, considerably before Tuesdays with Maury. Tuesdays with Maury is considered this beautiful, touching book, but he's really, I mean, he's discussing all of life and values, but it's about death. My father is dying when the story of Tuesdays with Maury is told. This book is not about death. People hear like, living creatively, you know, aging, and they think, oh, it's it's not, my father basically doesn't talk about death at all, or very little in yeah. this book. This book is about living, 
joyfully, creatively, continuing exactly. to, um, you know, blossom into your, into your, you know, as many years as you can. So there's a real continuum between the two books. So for sure, my father, you know, tried his best to answer your question to live vibrantly, to employ the techniques that he himself was talking about, to learn new things. And he had his own things that, you know, excited him. He says in this book, you know, find out what your interests are, find out what works for you. For some people that may be studying, that may be going to school, that may be going to a lecture. For my father, it was meeting people and discussing things with them and finding out what their perspective was, what their ideas were. And he continued to do that throughout his life. But to really specifically answer your question, and some people you know, know this because of Tuesdays with Maury, he had this tremendous challenge at the end of his exactly. life. You know, He had this fatal illness. So it's not all peaches and cream that you sail along, you learn new things. I mean, and this was not just like, okay, I have this challenge. I mean, this was a real gut punch for him. And he was morose and depressed, and he had to summon all of his resources in order to try and, you know, get above that and live a joyous and vibrant life in the last year of his life. But yes, I think he was successful, and I think it's very clear that he was successful. If you read Tuesdays with Maury, you can also watch there online the TV segments um, Nightline with Ted Koppel, which of course was a huge show, the biggest news magazine show right. at that time. And you can see, I mean, he even talks about the fact that, you know, in the morning he has to get up and make a choice. Like, am I going to rise above this or am I going to let it drag me down? And there's some mornings he says, you know, where I grieve and I cry for my situation and et cetera. But then I make the conscious choice to rise above it. So, you know, he really had a huge challenge in his life. This isn't just theoretical, right? And right. Yeah, I think that he was able to rise above it and to live vibrantly until the disease took him. Right. I think that it's really interesting that when he wrote this book, he was not yet ill. Right. And so in many ways, it was more theoretical. And then in his own life, he had to experience it as essentially, does it really work? You know, can I really take, can I really take what I wrote when I felt good? Right. And when life was still relatively yeah. easy and the worst thing I was experiencing was a little ageism from a few people to now I'm, I'm ill and it's hard right. and, right. you know, can I still do it? And I think that it's really interesting. The answer is, is yes, it was written before and maybe more in a theoretical idea, but his life proved that you can and should continue to live in a joyful manner. And there's no reason why you can't, even if you have something like ALS that you know is going to take your life. Right. Uh, right. There is a little, a little nuance to what you said. I mean, in general, I think that you summarize it very well. In fact, my father had the first sort of like chronic disease of his life. The, the asthma, right? right time. And it was, I mean, it was a big deal. It wasn't right. uh, in the beginning, it was, you know, threatening and it was painful and they had to get it under control with drugs. And so it wasn't like he was perfectly healthy and this was all right. theoretical, right. but it was nothing like ALS, that's for sure. So it was like the little test case, right? Asthma. And, you know, he was able to move beyond that and write this book. The asthma was worse, actually, before he started writing this book. I right. think the fact that they got it under control allowed him to have the energy and the, you know, the strength to write this book. At that point, it was almost like, you know, so he came through that with shining, you know, and, and now right. he wrote the book on right. how to live joyfully. And then he had to really see does it right. really, really work? And I, and I love that it did. So do you have anything else on the horizon for you? What is what is next for Rob? Sure. Schultz? We didn't talk about me so much. Obviously, this project is not really about me. It's about my dad. Uh, I'm a journalist and a producer and an entrepreneur. I have two things that I'll talk about because they're both, one is very relevant to this discussion and um, they're both coming up. 
So I'm part of a group of producers that's going to make a big benefit music festival for mental health. We feel that there's kind of a mental health crisis in this country and around the world, really. And yeah. there's not been enough focus on it. So I'm together with a musical artist and a great producer in L.A. We've brought in other producers. The project is called OneTopia, O-N-E-T-O-P-I-A. You can go to OneTopia.com. We're going to um, put together a music festival. It's going to be in summer of next year. And hopefully, you know, it will get a lot of attention and we'll be able to raise a lot of money for mental health. You know, mental health was one of the key um, aspects of my father's career, as I write about in the beginning essay he wrote. And he had a lot of insights about that where we're actually, you know, standard teaching tools for decades. His book was used as a textbook, his big breakthrough book, which was called The Mental Hospital. So OneTopia, OneTopia.com is a big project that I'm working Super. on. Less related to mental health, but I also produce film and have worked in the music industry. Uh, I I'm a partner in a music project to create concerts in virtual reality. So we have a um, virtual reality platform called Moshpit, M-O-S-H-P-I-T, the website is moshpit.live. We haven't launched yet, but we're going to launch in the next few months. And it is related tangentially to what we're talking about here because we want to offer this virtual platform to musicians who are not famous, to general musicians across the board. Because there right. are other virtual platforms, if you know about this at all, there are other virtual platforms who, you know, whatever, it's uh, Travis Scott doing stuff in virtual. Of course, any virtual company would be, you know, overjoyed to work with a megastar like that who's going to have massive attention focused on them. And there's a lot of companies out there that are doing that. But we're trying to be the virtual platform for people who don't necessarily have that immediate opportunity. Right. So Mosh Pit will launch in the next couple of months, and I'm really excited about it. We have incredible back end. We have incredible designers. We actually think our environments look better and more realistic than other platforms. But the point is, is to get it out there, to have people be able to use it and reach their audience. So those are two uh, projects that I'm involved in right now. Fantastic. Well, good. And is there any other way that you would like people to connect with you? Besides sure. One Topia and Mosh Pit. Sure. Well, this book has a website, um, okay. wisdomofmori.com. You don't need the just wisdomofmori.com. I have lots of information about the book up there. You can write to me through that website. Uh, I do put one email address out there. Of course, it's not my main email address, but for the public, uh, it's a little bit of a strange word. So I can spell it out for you. G A N. G-A-M-A-T-I, Gangamati at yahoo.com. Gangamati is uh, the, a river goddess in India. They call the river that we call Ganges, the famous river, is called Ganga in India. So Gangamati okay. basically means mother of the, of the Ganges. And uh, I use that email address. People are, you know, perfectly welcome to write to me. I love to hear from people. I love to hear their reactions to this book and hopefully it helps if the book helps you if you're you know in any way find the book valuable please write a review it's so important to to write reviews especially if you like the book on amazon on goodreads on barnes and noble website whatever website you use for literature i'm sure you're very familiar with it since yes. you're an author yes having <laughs> having the reviews it's it's amazing what that does to right. help people start to learn who you are and what you're doing and what the book is doing. And yeah. Right. So and I, I, agree. I have to give a shout out to Mitch, Mitch album, because none of this would be possible without Mitch. His book is so beautiful. You know, it's a very concise book. He, he, um, he, he uses his words so perfectly. There's not one wasted word in the whole book. And you know, for a new generation, if you haven't read Tuesdays with Maury, you know, you can get get it and you may be surprised at how beautifully Mitch writes and how wonderfully he captures my father. And if you if you crack it open, you'll understand 
why it was number one on the bestseller list for five consecutive years wow. in, in the yeah. early 2000s. I saw well, that I, actually as a play. I tell you a lot about that. There's right. a lot of fascinating information. He opened it. He wrote a play. He opened as an off-Broadway play. And somehow, in addition to the book, the book has been, Tuesdays with Maury has been translated into like 40 languages. The Wisdom of Maury also, I have about 12 or 13 different languages, so I'm very happy about that. But Tuesdays with Maury has been about 40 different languages. And somehow, the play has permeated the world. And I have performed, not performed, but done Q&A after the play in all sorts of different cultures, including Japan, where I lived for a long yeah. time, and China, mainland China. The play is incredibly popular, performed at the most prestigious theaters in Beijing, in Shanghai, with super famous Chinese actors. And it's just remarkable how the popularity of the play in China. So, you know, the, the, his dad's message really sort of reaches across cultures and, and age groups. So yeah, it does. I'm, ha it I'm does. so happy about that. Yeah, It's wonderful. Of course, I want people to get the wisdom of Maury and experience it for right. themselves. Maybe we'll leave this with a teaser because I alluded to it. There are, and I'm sure you're aware of it, there are specific techniques in this book on how to live more creatively and more vibrantly. And, you know, some of them may speak to you and some of them may not. Some of them are very personal that you do by yourself. Particularly, I'll just drop one in there, particularly meditation. My mm -hmm. father was really interested in meditation, practiced it. It doesn't have to be connected to any spiritual path or any dogma or anything like that. It's purely a mind technique to calm yourself down, to focus your mind. And that's one technique. There's a lot of other suggestions and techniques like that, some of which really reach across all age groups. Like meditation is good for everybody. For everyone. Other right. ones are a little bit more focused on aging people, but I would encourage people to get the book, if just for that, to learn the techniques that my father is putting out there to try and help you live a more full and creative life, more joyous. I agree. Well, thank you so much for being with me today, Rob. I really oh, enjoyed I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you, Visibility Pod, for all your services and management of our podcast.